In this episode, Joel Stevens, VP of Finance at List, talks about using gold standards to shape the vision for his team, how building minimum viable products helps them move rapidly in uncertain times, and why mentorship is at the core of his leadership style. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Joel, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a really cool thing that you guys are doing. I really, it's something I've been listening along to. So yeah, it's great. That's great to hear. I really appreciate that. And it's brilliant to have you on as a guest. I'd love to start, Joel, thinking about your journey and the fact that you joined List originally as financial controller and then have really gone through almost like the full suite of finance positions before obviously becoming VP of finance. So can you talk a little bit about your journey and how your responsibilities have evolved and also how that's worked in sync with List's growth over that period, which I'd imagine is quite significant? Just to give some backgrounds, I studied maths at university. I did a master's in maths and then went on to KPMG in 2010 to join their middle market audits department. So I worked in practice before coming into industry and I was in practice for about four and a half years. And I actually went to a small recruitment company for about six months to kind of explore being in industry before joining List. So prior to List, I I really hadn't had that much time to sort of learn how a finance department ran and, and what industry meant. In the previous company, it was I was basically an FC at a small recruitment firm with a team of, I think the size of the company was about 30 people. And when the company's that small and you're an FC, you pretty much do everything. So this was running payroll. This was chasing debt in India. This was uh, everything you could possibly imagine. So I got a pretty good experience in in those first six months of how, how everything was run. And then I sort of, I got a call from Manisha Chana, who was the um, then head of finance at List. And she wanted me to sort of, she said, I heard you might be interested in a company that mixes fashion with tech. And I pretty much nail on the head exactly what I was uh, looking for. So I moved across to List. And as you said, joined as an FC. When I started the company, I think I was employee number 84 around that. So it was not a small company, but definitely still, I would say, in the startup kind of zone where it's scrappy for all of the good reasons. The first two things that I did were closing out our audit and reorganizing our weekly beer shop. And I think that pretty much sums up startup life. And when I was, you know, I was hired as an FC at that point in time and and with that size of company, I was kind of the right-hand man for Manisha, for the head of finance, trying to put out fires. Often her hands were full looking after strategy. And so my role was to try and take those files off her, put them out, and then put the files back into the people who were owning them. I would say the first couple of years at List was me really learning how to run a finance function and how to manage a team. Because it's a bit of a culture shock coming from a big practice going into industry. In practice, I met with my manager to do a fairly general, generic update on how I was performing every six months. Whereas when I joined List, Manisha would meet with me. So my direct line manager would meet with me once a week and I would walk into this room and say, and okay, this is what I've been working on. And she's like, no, no, no. How do you feel? How are you? And I was like, why is she asking me this? Like, this, they actually care about what, what I think. And 
this was a really nice experience for me, but it was also me having to learn that that's how I needed to be with the people who were working with me and to build that sort of nurturing environment and to find people's strengths and to encourage those and to find people's weaknesses and to help them to like develop those and, and you know, be open and say, maybe this is the part that you're not quite as strong, but that's great. Let's work on that. So that was a lot of what I was doing at the beginning, obviously learning things. There's things that you learn in practice that when you actually go into industry, like how to use zero, how prepayments get booked into zero, stuff like that. So there was a lot of that happening at the beginning. Manisha left after about three years of me being with List. And at that point, I started working a lot with our COO, Jose Ojeda. He's got a McKinsey background, so he's very, very analytical and he has phenomenal ability to build financial models. So I kind of transitioned from this thinking about my team and and managing them and working on sort of processes like debtors and invoicing into a role where I was trying to value add and I guess more of the FP&A role, building financial models, working out how to build budgets. And with Jose, we went through our Series D fundraise. And we also went through, obviously, last year, everything that happened with COVID. Yes. That was a very intense period of time for us from a modeling perspective. And I think there are two very different types of modeling. When you go through a, a fundraise, a lot of what I learned was the importance of using drivers, knowing what your drivers of your company are and using them to tell the story of how your business works. So for us, you've got, you know, if you think about the chain down the funnel, you've got acquisition, which in itself has drivers of, you know, the number of people you bring to the website and the cost of that. Then you've got like the conversion rate, the amount of money that person spends and it goes all the way down. So those for us are the drivers. And if you can understand those drivers and almost tell a story with them, your model comes to life and it starts to really build on a narrative that the CEO can can actually have a conversation with the investors who might be looking to uh, you're looking to pitch to. When it came to COVID, it was completely different. You're talking yeah. to banks, you're talking to people who are a little bit worried about you, and you're not trying to sell the business. You're trying to prove that whatever happens, you're robust and you're resilient. And so what we did it was much, much more high level modeling, certainly not anywhere the detail that we were having when we when we go to market. And we did a lot of scenario planning. And so we, we basically said, I think this, this probably went around the finance world, but like there was some Bain and McKinsey estimates of like the impact of COVID and they had like a full scenario system. And we basically jumped on board that and said, okay, First scenario is a three-month hit. Second scenario is a six-month hit. Third is a 12-month and final is a two-year. And, and the, I think the 12-month was defined as global pandemic. So the two-year is, you know, end of the world kind of thing. Yeah. I think sometimes it's a bit of a weird thing to say, but some of the, some of the hardest things you can go through are often the things where you learn the most. And yeah. certainly it feels like on the back of the the stuff that happened with COVID, I, I think we learned a lot as a business, the things that, you know, how, how other people could see the business and how we can run the business in different ways. As you were saying, towards the end of that fundraising, that was a, a huge success that you, you closed the round, which you deemed as a pre-IPO round. This was the one before. So actually, ah. Jose, Jose left last year. And so I recently, we've done a Series E which was, you know, very successful. I, I was working with our CEO, Chris Morton, CEO and founder, Chris Morton, on that. And again, it was another different experience. So with, with the Series D, 
I was supporting a lot with the modeling and and trying to help with the DD process and the the endless stream of investor questions that always come with this. And with the Series E, you know, I was very lucky to be close to parts of the process. And so was sitting in on calls when it came to the financial side of things. So Chris's background is he's an he was VC before he um, founded List which means he's incredibly eloquent when it comes to talking about the business. And he's also, he has a real passion for it. And he really understands why the business is, it has, you know, the value proposition of the business and why he thinks it's going to be fantastically successful. And the way that he's able to convey that is something that I'm still kind of learning. What Chris can do is take those numbers and say, this is why this is so amazing. He will yeah. pick out pieces that are sometimes I just take for granted. And he says, you don't realize how amazing this particular unit economic is. If if we tell people about this, they will really like eyes open, mind blown kind of stuff. And Chris is very good at being able to pick that up. So I learned a lot off that. But um, yeah, that's the one that you were speaking about. That was uh, yeah a few months ago now. What you're alluding to as well is that presumably from his background as a venture capital investor, he understood the game, the dance, which it really helps. And then, of course, he knew he had probably all the different comps and benchmarks. So he knew what was good, what wasn't. But within that inherently, you're implying there's an evangelism there as well, because you have to ultimately, numbers will only get you so far. And then there has to be a belief in the vision. Is that something that you saw in the way that he communicated the vision through CDZ? Yeah, exactly what you're saying. So there's kind of two sides to it. So if we take a step back, and sometimes this is easy to forget, you're meeting with a lot of people very like, especially with COVID and everyone working from home, there's no restriction on travel. There's no travel time. There's no, I need to get to someone's office. So you can end up doing back to back meetings with people. And so you can actually, you know, this is maybe one of the benefits of, for all of the drawbacks of not being able to meet people in person, you're able to fit in more people and quickly roll through them. But what you realize is some of these people have not heard of your company before. So that you, you've got to you've got to get, take them straight from scratch, like warm them up. And some people have maybe not even played in your industry before. So they might be new to fashion. And I realize we're like fashion tech, but like they might not really know what is what good looks like and what are the really exciting things to look at. And, you know, if I think about my background coming from audit, what audit does is it says, here is all of the information and the auditors are just there to check, to kick the tires. Yeah. They don't care if something is good or something is bad. They just want to make sure it's not wrong. Whereas with a process like that, with a fundraise, what you're trying to do is say, here's all of the information, but really look at this because you'll probably never see this in any other company. Like some of the things that we have, our acquisition model is pretty much unparalleled. I don't know anyone in e-commerce who has customer acquisition costs as low as ours. And we we kind of draw our attention to it. And you can see some people are like, okay, I understand what their number is. What Chris is able to do is he knows he's very good at spotting what other companies are doing. He's very good at knowing what great looks like. And therefore he pulls out those great things about list and make sure that we aren't, people aren't skipping over them, make sure that we're talking about them. And that's, I think, often the power of the the founder as well. They're able to tell that, that compelling story. And we've, um, at Soldo, have gone through a recent fundraising round. And, and when you see, our, in our case, our founder, Carlo, who has been through this many times as a serial entrepreneur, and now that was our Series C, so he'd been through a few rounds himself. When you see that, the combination of the knowledge and the, the knowledge on the category, the evangelism, but then also the ability to draw out the relevant insights at the right time to, to highlight what's special about the business. Sometimes, you know, you can see in those entrepreneurs, there's, there's, a, there's a touch of magic in that storytelling. 
I think maybe that's where where you you split the difference between the great CEOs and the good CEOs. It's um, someone who really is dialed into the business. And I mean, I, I support Chris when it comes to the finance side, but Chris could very easily do it himself because he he just knows all of those things. So I think that that really comes across when we're in those sort of meetings. One thing I also recognise, even going through our process, is that the pandemic, in, in, and I think this applied to many businesses, maybe Zoom's the only one where it was at like 100% positive, but even then it's dipping down again as the, the real economy comes back. But the, inherently, some parts of your business like, went through the roof and, and performed incredibly, but then other parts of the business, and it might not be quite the same for e-commerce, I'd love to get your perspective, but other parts of the business didn't do so well. And when you're in fundraising, you're trying to demonstrate the certainty of the past and why your projections of the future are so certain. And that's actually quite challenging to do, especially if there's a mixed picture of a pandemic in the in the rear view mirror. Did you experience any of that when you were actually trying to convey it? Or actually, was it just an incredibly positive event from a business point of view so you didn't have that challenge a mixture of the both so in terms of you know last year was very hard to guess what was going to happen hence all of the the scenario planning that we had to do last sort of april may time i i guess there's always going to be headwinds and tailwinds when it comes to this but one of the things that's happened with us is if you compare the the e-commerce market especially like luxury fashion to other other verticals it's massively under under penetrated travel is up at i know 78 percent online fashion before the pandemic was something like 15 maybe a little bit higher percent post pandemic it's gone up to about it tipped towards 30 percent, so it really went up quite considerably but even even then that is not a massive share of the business so it, it feels like it pushed the total addressable market forwards in terms of online luxury fashion but there's still much more that much more headroom to be able to go there there were some fun trends people stopped buying things like high heels and and handbags because obviously they weren't going out to parties pajamas i'm telling you if if you weren't buying pajamas last year you were the, the odd person out if everyone was on it, it was it was really funny to see it shoot out our listings so it was a very strange year in terms of what people were buying but we were lucky that you know, everything went in the right direction. And maybe maybe you could say actually our business is well positioned because you've not only got online, which means it's when you have shop closures, we don't we don't get hit. But you know, when things break down, actually that works in our favor. That's the point of our business is the more fragmented a market is, the better it is for us. So yeah. if you can't get all of the sizes of a pair of Nike trainers in one place, but they're spread across the world, that's why you come to list because we aggregate them all into one place. So a lot of the things actually worked in our favor, and I, I think it makes us quite resilient to that. In terms of the way that we did the fundraise, it was definitely a massive question, and we it was brought up quite a lot. We built a separate document that went alongside the financial model to talk through all of the all of the metrics, how they'd moved year on year, and what we think was going to happen next year, and why we thought that that was true. It's something that I would actually carry forwards, even if we weren't going into sort of troubled times, you know, pandemics and things like that. I think sometimes these models are massive, like, because they've got to have a huge amount of data. The expectation from the investors is maybe two, maybe five years historic, yeah. plus two, like two, five years forwards. It's a huge, huge file. And like you said, some of them are on quite tight timelines. They're trying to turn this around in a week. We produced this file, which was like, that is the big file, but here's all the things that you need to know. Here's the, here's the narrative and how it intertwines with the main numbers. 
And I think a lot of them latched onto that. And that was our way of explaining the effect of COVID. But it was also a really nice touch and, and something that I think I'll probably carry forward with um, future versions if we, if we do fundraising. So did you see that reduce the, uh, as you mentioned, the inevitable number of due diligence questions from investors? I mean, there was a lot of questions. I don't know if if it did reduce it. I'm worried about what I was left with because, yeah, it's certainly a full time job that's staying on top of it. I can't remember who the quote came from, but they said uh, you never. It's like a great work of art. You never finish it. You just run out of time. And I think that's the same with investor questions. Exactly. That is exactly the way. It's just panic stations, doing as much as you can, running as fast as you can, and then the clock stops, and you all take a breath and have a cup of tea. And the other thing that I observed from being part of that process with our company is that the huge onus is on the finance team to do that. Now, of course, you engage commercial leaders, the the founders involved and so forth. But the real core engine room of this process, where like the majority of the work sits is within the finance team. I'm sure you experienced the same thing. So how did you manage the team's engagement, motivation through that, that type of intense process? Yeah, I, I will call out the legal team as well. They they were working the same hours as us and uh, it is a bit bonkers going through the process. Managing the team. So maybe I, I'll dive into the way that I run the team on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So I sit above our core finance function and our FP&A finance function. And my aim is to give them as much autonomy as I can. And so I try to step back and let them run. So this means that they can run the team the way that they want to run it they can pick the projects that they work on and it gets them quite engaged you know they're they're i think they appreciate the role a lot more by me not sort of micromanaging them when it comes to those teams i don't spend too much time on the core side of things the core side i might help with the odd technical topic and so on the core side my director is my fc and i meet with her once a week to discuss things like cash, debtors, um, anything that might have come up. But aside from that, I'm, I, I kind of stand back and let her run it. On the FP&A side of the business, it's kind of the ad hoc stuff. The core finance team for me are like the bottom of a cheerleading pyramid. And then the FP&A team are like the person who stands on the top. Now, your eyes get drawn to the top and you're impressed by the person doing the handstanding. But there's no way that would work unless you had a really strong base underneath it. And that's kind of the same with these two teams. It doesn't make sense to have a finance team that can tell you when there's a trend in conversion rates and it's moving in one direction if payroll keeps failing and and you can't get that right. So what I like to do is I give the core team a lot of the cyclical jobs, a lot of the ones that I absolutely cannot fail on. So that could be payroll, that's paying suppliers, cash reconciliations, everything like that. And their role is to try and make sure that they're almost one of those teams where when everything is going smoothly, you don't realize it's happening. But as soon as it doesn't work, it disrupts the whole of the business. Yeah. And so ultimately, the role of my core, core team is to make sure that everything runs uh, is to is to kind of stop the rest of the company being distracted. I want everyone else, you know, in the other departments to be focused on their own role rather than worrying about a finance function that that might have broken down. People think of core finance as like the unsexy side of the business or the bit that's less exciting. I really don't agree with that. I think if you're in a business that's growing rapidly, you know, in a scale up or a startup, I think that function should be changing year on year. If it is doing exactly the same things it was doing last year, there's probably something wrong. And the second call out is I think. Some people think that being in a core function means that you won't get recognition. 
because you're kind of a business as usual function, a support function. And again, I really don't like that. I, I, I disagree with that because I think if that's happening, the manager isn't dialed into the way that the function works. Last year, our financial controller was recognized as one of the top performing people uh, in the company because she delivered uninterrupted service at a time when we had team churn and that coincided with the fundraise. She was able to do that despite everything going on, nothing broke. And I love that List looks to the support teams to be able to say, you're one of our top performers just because you provided uninterrupted service. I think that's how it should be with companies. So that's kind of my core team. And this kind of gets me on to what you were talking about when it comes to fundraising. I really isolated them. I did not let them touch m- most of the uh, the fundraise stuff, the, the, the questions, the modeling, everything like that. If you were to ask anyone else in the business, they probably wouldn't have realized it was going on because payroll got done, invoices got paid, cash recs were being done, everything, even Jira tickets were being answered within two, you know, 24 hours. So everything was running smoothly from their point of view. And then basically the FP&A function dropped everything else and just said, right, we're going to go full force into this. And that is one of the, the risky side of that is have you really staffed your FP&A team with enough people to be able to cover that? Because it, it's a lot of work. It's, you know, the modeling itself is huge. And that's before you've even really kicked off the process. As soon as you open the data room, as you said, you've just got an endless number of requests. I don't know if there's better ways to do it, but I wanted to make sure that we didn't drop that, drop the baton when it came to supporting the rest of the business with this. One of the, the principles or tenants has been to fail fast and then thrive on feedback. So how do you marry up that aspiration, which again is kind of emblematic of Facebook culture and others as well, with a function that really you don't want them to fail on paying suppliers or paying your staff or, you know, other critical functions of that? How do you then as a leader balance those two things together? So there is a framework that I love called the MVP framework, and that stands for Minimum Viable Product. And this was a book called The Lean Startup. I think it was written over a decade ago. So this is not a new concept, but I think this is exactly how I get that from my team. The idea with an MVP is you create something that is sort of kind of scrappy, not a finished product by any means, but it's something that you can just about send out to someone, a stakeholder, and you can get feedback on. And you get that feedback. And if they say they like it, you do a little bit more and then you get some more feedback. And the idea is you don't go too far down the rabbit hole before you realize you've done something wrong. And if you take that from a finance perspective, you know, the easy thing is to say MVPs don't work with finance. You can't fail at something. You can't send out a spreadsheet with wrong data. That's not how I think about it. The way that I think about it is maybe you take a massive set of data and you only take a small subset of that and you put it into a fairly unflattering format, but it took you five minutes to do. And you share it with someone and you say, is this something you'd be interested in? Is this something that would help you make business decisions? If they say no, you spend very little time on it. If they say yes, that's the time to start jazzing it up and start saying, okay, let's make this a bit more comprehensive. Let's make this easy to understand. And, you know, the risk is if you'd just gone all of that that way before asking for feedback, you spent a week color coding graphs for something that's no one else wants. Another good example is something we don't, we're doing recently is if your business is changing in complexity or changing in size, the budget that you did last year or, or the way that you built the budget might not be applicable anymore. And you have to kind of go back to, to roots to work out how it might work. You have two ways of doing that. You know, the old fashioned method was 
right, go build a budget and you go and spend two weeks building an Excel file. This MVP framework is, okay, what's the minimum thing I can do to check if this is actually going to work? And so my, uh, you know, director of FPNA will come to me with a flow diagram, take half an hour to create little boxes in Excel and say, this is how I think the different tabs of the spreadsheet would integrate with each other. This is how the departments would fit together. This is the flow of the KPIs. Are you happy with this? If I say yes, great. Okay, go away and build the spreadsheet. You haven't wasted any time. If I say no, at least you haven't spent time building it. And so I think that's the way that I think test and learn works in the finance function. And I think not only does it give you efficiencies and allows your team to get through things a lot faster, but it also allows your team to start dialing into the way that stakeholders think. I found that my team are starting to, because they're going to someone after a day's worth of work and saying, this is what I want to do. Is this what you think would be good? They can see if they say yes or no, and they can see why they say yes or no. And they can start to add think like them. And if you get really good at it, you start to produce things that people didn't even know they needed because you've already started to think how they would think at each one of the junctions. You can go all the way. I love the concept and I've often tried to practice it and sometimes got it right. But then other times what I'm trying to bring to the, the people around me, the projects we're involved in or my teams is that the idea of like raising the bar in terms of the quality of, of analysis or the quality of insights and the quality of deliverable. And when you're doing that, you can get into a perfectionist mindset where you want to really create something so that you can model the right behavior, the ultimate end deliverable that you're trying to get to. But that sometimes runs contrary to test and learn because test and learn, if not taken in the right way, can lead to you just kind of churning out things quickly at a poor quality level purposefully to get feedback, but it can send the wrong, the wrong signal. Is that something that you've ever struggled with or, or ever seen within your teams something they can sometimes struggle with? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And it's I think it's true of all departments, right? Uh, you know, you see it in some companies where you can see them making, it's the difference between like an app update and an, a new app, right? The version 1.1.1 is a little bit better, but it's not going to break the mold of what it was before. So with us, the way that we manage this, and this kind of leads into goal setting, which I think is quite challenging. But if you get it right, I think this can this can get you, give you a good bit of visibility about how it should work. So I start at what we need to achieve at the end. And then you can create those MVPs along the way and you kind of check yourself and make sure you're still actually delivering what you are looking to achieve at the end. I have been sort of messing around with the way that we do goal set. Well, so I do goal setting in finance for a couple of years and I've landed upon this concept of gold standard, which I think is a different way to do it. I don't know if it's the right way, but it's the way that I'm using at the moment. So the idea is every six months I'll meet with my directors, we'll grab a room and we'll go with a whiteboard and we'll basically mark out on the board big squares which show each of the different finance categories. So that could be compliance, debtors, cash management. And then we will use post-it notes to say what we think a particular gold standard would be for that area of the business. And the gold standard, it can be like a two-year or five-year aspiration. It's not meant it's not meant to be easily achievable. It's meant to be what does the best finance department in the world do in this area of the business? And the the idea is you get the best in class and then you can work back from there to work out what you should be doing. So we create these gold standards and I call them long-term key results. 
And then underneath those, you then start to look at, okay, that's a two-year or five-year plan. Yeah. What do I need to do along the way to get there? And those become your milestones or your short-term key results. Um, so to give you an example, if you take one of the areas, for example, cash management, you might say your long-term key result is to get above market interest rates for your cash holdings. A short-term key result or something that might fit into a quarter is to speak to five new account managers at banks and see if you can start negotiating some decent interest rates. The problem with this is at the moment you're talking about key results and you haven't really answered the question why. And the question why for me is taking a step back, why are we doing this? What And, and not even why is finance doing this, why does List want you to do this? Why does the company want you to do this? And to answer that question, you have to really think that List is dedicating resources to it, potentially even dedicating money to it. It really wants to know why there is a business case for us spending this time on this. And for us, List defines the answer to the question why as the objective for the key result. Um, so if I take that cash example, you're looking for above market interest rates. If I put this into perspective, if one of my accounts assistants is able to find a interest rate, which is, say, 10% higher than the one that we currently have, that alone can cover the cost of two accounts assistants for a full year next year. Yeah, That is an insane upside. That's huge. And so maybe if you take a step back to work out what the objective is or sort of that big why question, we want the key result is to get above market interest rates. And the objective is to have as much money as possible for uh, in the bank for list to invest in opportunities. And so this was a process that we went through. And I really love it because it really allows you to define why you're doing things in the business. And for me, it also had the added benefit of it was a roadmap for everything that I could possibly do to become like gold standard, which which is maybe interchangeably with IPO ready. A lot of these things are like, you have to do some of these things if you want an IPO. And some of the key results, you realized, I don't have capacity to work on this for maybe like 12 months, 18 months. And you start to have conversations with the hiring committee to say, this is the time frame for us doing this. Do you want to pull this forwards by making additional hires? And they have a very clear visibility. Hire this person, you're able to do this thing, and this is the impact on list as a whole. And so that was how we're able to kind of manage the iterations through the MVPs is we always know what we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to achieve it and what the business impact would should be. If we get to an iteration and we've moved away from that and we're not doing the why anymore, then something has gone wrong and we just take a step back and maybe go back an iteration or so. Really what that does is that ties very closely into your your planning process as a company, which I wanted to touch on as well, because you actually approach things rather than annually, it's biannually, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So why did you decide to go with biannual versus annual? Because the conventional is annual and, and there's an inertia connected to that, and maybe there's some sense with it as well. What made you decide to do things in a more regular basis? There is unpredictability in not only sort of the market that we're working in, like I said, it feels like it should be more mature than it is. It goes through spurts and it's very hard to know what's going to happen next. But also we're a business which is changing very, very quickly. We're, we're a business which is building out new products, changing the sort of platforms that we're providing. And so 12 months is a long time. Yeah. For a business like us, 12 months is a long time. And for us, the risk was we were going to turn down an opportunity to be a just for the sake of hitting budget. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do was give ourselves a bit more freedom and, and have very good open conversations with our board of directors to say, 
we'll set up with the annual budget and there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes of prioritizing. You're always going to want to do a hundred different things, but there's only a certain amount that you can actually, you have not only the money to do, but also the resourcing to do, because it's all about how, how much capacity you've got in the business. And so you set that out at the beginning of the year and you create an agreement with the board to say, this is what we want to achieve. These are the strategic things which we think will push this company forwards. And this is the way that the financials flow on the back of those strategic objectives. And then six months later, you really want to have a conversation with them and say, we can do exactly what we told you. And we're very happy to commit to that. Or this opportunity has presented itself. And we just do not want to miss those. They happen very more frequently than you would expect, or at least they have for list. And, you know, two or three years ago is internationalization, which for us is a bit weird because we've always been international. It was actually localization. So we created domains that were in local languages. But we saw this opportunity halfway through the year and you either stick to your original budget and don't do it. Or we launched, I think it was four domains in the first, in that second half of the year. And then we launched another six when we started the new budget process the year after. We would never have known that it was a good idea if we hadn't sort of tested in the second half of the year and then said, guys, we've got to go with this. Let's let's put it in the full year budget for next year because we think this would be a great opportunity. And it has. It's been a fantastic thing. That That for me is... I think sometimes you can get bogged down by ab admin and you can kind of go down the corporate route of saying we have to do this to tick boxes rather than saying we're still agile, we're still a we're scale up, we're still able to be very mobile and move and adapt to what's in front of us. Let's still use that as an opportunity. One thing I've seen from obviously your profile is that you invest in, and just quite recently, actually within the last year, invested uh, time in becoming a mentor for two different organizations. And I just wanted to understand, like, like, what was it that led you to doing that? And why did you pick those two organizations? Being completely frank, I'm very lucky. I'm white, I'm male, and I, I've been lucky with my background you know, I'd like to think that I've worked hard for everything that I've done. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's been some biases from other people that have let me get to where I've got to. And I kind of, it doesn't sit 100% well with me. I, I wanted to make sure that I gave something back. And for me, I didn't really know how to do that, to be honest. And last year, obviously, everything with Black Lives Matter was was a bit of a, it was an opportunity for me to learn. I, I think I probably could have invested more time before that learning about it. But it was a moment for me to actually start reading about it, understanding and doing things. And I'm part of a Slack network called the CFO Startup Network, uh, which is in London. And it's a great network, very, very good for sharing ideas, very collaborative. And someone was on the one of the, I think it was one of the founders of that said, there is a, a network that is looking for people to mentor. So I'm now mentoring a young lady who has started at Deloitte and it's, it's a bit nostalgic for me, to be fair. It's, um, <laughs> but she's, she's, she wanted to, you know, understand how, what I did at KPMG, the things that I thought were, were good ideas, the things that maybe I would have changed if I could. And it's a nice way to give back in that sense. I also do some mentoring for, I, I got approached on LinkedIn I actually don't know how they approached me, but someone approached me and said, I think she was a recruiter and said, I've got a young FC who's just joined a company. There's no one above her and she's looking for some mentoring. Would you be interested in this? And I, I put my hand up and said, yes. Yeah. So I've been working with her 
for six or seven months. And again, it's it's kind of fun because it's it's like being back at the beginning of list again. And all of those scrappy things that you have to do, the houses that are on fire, trying to work out how to structure teams, how to hire and everything like that. I'm not saying I have the the answers, but I can give her sort of what I did and the things that worked for me and the things that might not have been um, the best decisions. Is there one thing perhaps that you've learned from that mentoring experience, from mentoring both of those people that you perhaps didn't expect going into it? I think I was very naive about the mentoring that I was naturally given and expect, I thought that everyone would naturally get that. I think my background had a part to play in that. At the same time, I was very, very lucky at List. I've had some incredible managers along the time uh, who, who have really nurtured me, really encouraged me. And I think having that inside the company is even easier than having to go outside and, and find people to tell you what, uh, how you might progress. I think I was quite surprised that there are people who haven't got anyone to turn to. They haven't got a relation or a friend who's worked in that industry before. And yeah, it, it did validate the reason that these networks need to exist. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the show. If any of the listeners want to go and connect with you or, or follow you online, where's the best place for them to do that? I'm on LinkedIn, so you can definitely reach out to me on there. Yeah, p- p- might be worth saying that uh, you're from the CFO playbook because there's a, a, f- a few messages, uh, quite a few messages that go into the into the mailbox and that way I'll, I'll make sure I prioritise those ones. I can only imagine the amount of approaches you get, especially around about fundraising time as well. Yeah, yeah, it keeps, it keeps things fruity. Joel, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ross. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.